Please open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. We're going to focus on just one verse this morning, verse 3. Last Sunday evening, we looked at verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul talked about the freedom from condemnation and the freedom from sin we have by faith in Jesus Christ as believers. We are free from condemnation. We deserve condemnation because of our sins, but we receive justification because of Christ. And so in the courtroom of God's perfect justice, we have actually been declared not guilty. We have been declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And there is no condemnation now for us who are in Christ. So that takes care of the courtroom. We are free from condemnation But even though we get to go home instead of going to jail because we are free from condemnation, we realize that we still have sin in our hearts. We still have the flesh. What do we do with that? Well, the good news is that not only are we free from condemnation, but also we are free from sin. That is, we are free from the ruling and reigning and dominating power of sin in our lives. The Spirit has set us free from the power of sin. The power of the Spirit who dwells within us is greater and stronger and mightier than the power of sin that still dwells within our hearts. So we're covered in the courtroom. The verdict of no condemnation stands and remains throughout the rest of our lives. But we're also covered on the battlefield in terms of our ongoing battle against Sin, because we've been set free from the power of sin by the life-giving Spirit of God. We have freedom from condemnation and freedom from sin because we are united to Christ and indwelt by the Spirit. That's verses 1 and 2. What Paul does in verses 3 and 4 now is he expands on verses 1 and 2, and he explains further verses 1 and 2, and he tells us the reason we've been given freedom from condemnation and freedom from sin. He tells us the point or the purpose, God's purpose for why we have been set free from condemnation and sin. So he's going to take us deeper into how we have freedom from condemnation and sin. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And he's going to tell us why we have freedom from condemnation and sin. That's what we're going to look at next Sunday morning, Lord willing. So there's a lot for us to learn here, a lot for us to be encouraged by, challenged by, both children and adults. So let's all look to the Lord in prayer together and ask him for his help, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help as we come again to your word together this morning. We've already heard your word in the call to worship and the scripture reading. We've already sung your word and prayed your word together. And now we come to the reading and the preaching of your word, and we ask for your help. Help us to learn more and to appreciate more these great truths about what you've done for us, and help us to understand more of why you've done what you've done. We need you to teach us. We need you to remind us. We need you to grow us in grace. Lord, we don't want to leave here the same as how we came. We want to leave here changed, 
and challenged and encouraged and transformed by the renewal of our minds. Please work in us by the power of your spirit through the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 8, I'll read verses 1 through 4. And again, our focus is going to be just on verse 3. These are the words of the living God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Wonderful verses. We're going to look this morning at the purchase of our freedom in verse 3. And as you'll see at the bottom of your notes there, next time we'll consider the point of our freedom in verse 4. Verse 3, as I said, expands on and explains further verses 1 and 2. It tells us how it is that we have freedom from condemnation and freedom from sin, and it's because of God. There are three things God does in verse 3 that we'll consider together. The first has to do with the law, the second has to do with the Son, And the third has to do with our sin. So, number one, God did something that has to do with the law. Let's think about that together. The first sentence of verse three says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law couldn't do. The law couldn't save us. It could only point to our need for salvation. The law couldn't redeem us. It could only point to our need for redemption. The law couldn't give us life. It could only bring us death. And that's not because there was something wrong with the law, remember. It's because there was something wrong with us. So if you've gotten lost before because you're following the driving directions on your phone or not following them as the case may be. That's not your phone's fault. That's, that's your fault. The law couldn't save us, but that wasn't the law's fault. That was our fault because we didn't follow it. Paul says in the middle of the first sentence in verse 3 that the law was weakened by the flesh. Weakened by the flesh, not that we could somehow do damage to the eternal, unchangeable law of God. Rather, because of our sinful flesh, we cannot be justified by our own obedience to the law. Paul said in chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law couldn't save us. But God has done what the law couldn't do. 
God succeeded where the law failed, as one author put it. Paul preached to the crowd in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law couldn't free us because we were enslaved to sin. But God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. If you're somewhat new to the Christian faith, to Christianity, one thing to know about it is that it is first and foremost about what God has done for us, not about what we do for God. We should obey God, but we don't obey God. We should obey his law, but we don't obey his law. And therefore, we are guilty. We stand condemned before him. He is our judge. And the main message of the Bible is not, here's what you need to do in order to earn your way back to God. No, the main message is rather, here's what God has done that you can't do. We'll hear more about what he's done in a minute, but for now, just recognize that Christianity is first and foremost about what God has done for us, not about what we do for him. As Christians, I think what Paul's saying here should remind us of the sinfulness of sin, that it would, quote-unquote, weaken something as strong and good as the law of God. Look back at chapter 7 for a second. Chapter 7, verse 8. Listen to what Paul says about how sin weakened the law, so to speak, used the law to bring us spiritual death. Chapter 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin is sinful beyond measure, that it would weaken the law. Let's be reminded again together this morning of the sinfulness of sin. and Let's flee from such sin in our daily lives. Flee to Christ, who is our refuge and our rock. I think what Paul's saying here should also remind us how good and how gracious our God is, that he would take the initiative to do something about our condemnation. Even though we've sinned against him, even though we've broken his holy law, he has done something about it. He has done what we couldn't do. He didn't have to. 
He wasn't under any obligation to. He could have just banged the gavel and pronounced the judgment and moved on to the next case. But no, he did something about our condemned condition. The law couldn't do it because it was weakened by the flesh. We couldn't do it because of our sin. But God did it because of his goodness and grace. And we should thank him and praise him for how good he is and for how gracious he is toward us. Well, what is it specifically that he's done? That's the second thing we're told about what God does in verse 3. The first had to do with the law. The second has to do with the Son. Look at the second sentence in verse 3. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What did God do? He sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He sent his Son. Let's think about that. He, that is God the Father, sent God the Son, his only Son. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. John three sixteen and 17 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Father sent the Son. The Son did not go on a secret rescue mission to save us behind the Father's back without the Father's knowledge. No, the Father sent the Son on a rescue mission to save us. The Son came down from heaven to earth to save us. But the Son came down because the Father sent him down. So who's behind it all? Who ordered and planned our rescue? The Father. The eternally loving, infinitely gracious, heavenly Father. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, the father, made him, the son, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the Father did it for our sake through the Son. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul said at the end of Romans 7. We shouldn't think of the Father as the wrathful member of the Trinity and the Son as the loving member of the Trinity. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same in substance, and they are equal in power and in glory, and they are equal in all the other attributes of God. Equally wrathful, equally holy, equally just, as well as equally loving, equally gracious, equally merciful. And we should make sure that we see clearly the love of the Father in the sending of His Son to rescue us from sin. Listen for a minute to what Sinclair Ferguson writes about this in his excellent book, The Whole Christ. The Whole Christ. The elders are reading this book right now. Uh, pray that we'd be helped by it. Ferguson writes, and I quote him at, at some length here, we can be sure that Jesus' disposition toward us is through and through love, but we fear that the Father's disposition is the result of persuasion, not personal devotion. Indeed, it may be he is reluctantly gracious, since it took the death of Christ to make him so. If this is the atmosphere in which we preach the gospel and people respond to it, a suspicion of the Father may linger long and prove to be a serious hindrance in the course of the Christian life. While often dormant in our souls, from time to time the thought will erupt that perhaps the Father himself, in himself, does not love us as the Son does. Such a disposition leads to a spirit of suspicion and even of bondage, not one of freedom and joy. Then when we ask the question, who is this Father God with whom we have to do and what manner of Father is he? we may never fully escape the suspicion that he is not a father of infinite love after all. The gospel is designed to deliver us from this lie. For it reveals that behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death for us is the love of a father who gives us everything he has. First, his son to die for us, and then his spirit to live within us. Again, I think we should make sure that we see and are permanently convinced of the love of the Father and the sending of the Son to rescue us from our sin. Paul says in verse 3 that the Father sent the Son, quote, in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh, which is a way of saying that he took on flesh but was without sin. He became one of us, but he was sinless. He was fully human, but he was free of sin. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Shorter Catechism number 22. Kids, some of you have studied this already in your Sunday school class. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? And you don't have to say it out loud, kids, but you can say it in your head right now if you know it. Christ, the Son of God, became man 
by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Great summary of the biblical teaching. Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became man. He added to himself a true human nature. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, and yet he was without sin so that he could save us from our sin. Like we sang about earlier, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Paul wrote in Philippians 2 that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ came all the way down to us. He didn't look down from heaven to save us. He didn't come most of the way down to save us. He didn't float six inches above the ground. No, he came all the way down to save us. But in order to save us, he had to be sinless. And the Bible is clear that he was, in fact, without sin. He was sent by his Father in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he himself was not sinful. He was sinless. And as we sing together, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God, the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God should be a great comfort and encouragement to us as believers. The Father sent the Son to rescue us. He didn't leave us in our sin, which it would have been just for him to do. It would have been right for him to do. No, the Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came all the way down to us and was one of us, is one of us, and yet he was not himself a sinner like all of us are. And because he was fully man and because he was fully free from sin, we have a full salvation by faith alone in him. Our salvation is as real as the incarnation. Christ was born that man no more may die. Christ was born to raise the sons of earth. Christ was born to give us second birth. He didn't just throw a rope down into the pit we were in. He climbed down into the pit we were in. All the way down, except without sin. And he picked us up and carried us out and set our feet upon the rock 
He has put a new song in our mouth. Psalm 40, verse 3, a song of praise to our God. The Father sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, Paul says. The Father sent the Son for sin. That is, for the payment of sin, for the atonement of sin, as a sin offering, as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ came for sin, not just to teach about sin, but to die for sin, and to die specifically for the sins of his people, for the sins of the elect, the sins of all who would ever turn from sin and believe in him by the sovereign grace of God. Christ didn't come for fame. Christ didn't come for the applause of the world. Christ came for sin. Christ didn't come to deal with politics or social issues or poverty. He came to deal with sin. He didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to conquer sin. He didn't come just to pick up all the righteous people and take them to heaven. He came for sin, for sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. He came for sin. And it's a good thing because you and I are sinners. We are weighed down by sin. We needed to be set free from sin, and Christ came to set us free. J.C. Ryle wrote the following in his book, Practical Religion, recent book of the month, Practical Religion. He said, let us set fully before our eyes the doctrine of Christ's vicarious death and substitution and rest our souls upon it. Let us grasp firmly the mighty truth that Christ on the cross stood in the place of his people, died for his people, suffered for his people, was counted a curse and sin for his people, paid the debts of his people, made satisfaction for his people, became the surety and representative of his people, and in this way procured his people's freedom. Let us understand this clearly, and then we shall see what a mighty privilege it is to be made free by Christ. Christ came to set us free. He came for sin. He came for our sin. That's the second thing God does in verse 3. First, he did what the law couldn't do. Second, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And third, and finally, about our sin. End of verse 3. He condemned sin in the flesh. That is, he condemned sin in the flesh of his son. The son bore our sin on his shoulders. 
And the Father condemned our sin in the flesh of His Son. This is what God prophesied would happen. Remember Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Father condemned our sin in the flesh of his Son. Verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The father condemned our sin in the flesh of his son. He poured out his wrath in full on his son and his son drank all of it. He drank the cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom. He drained the cup of God's wrath against all the sins of all his chosen people. And since God condemned sin in the flesh of his son, there is no condemnation left for us who are united to the son. All that remains is mercy. Two things as we draw to a close this morning. First, make sure you are united to the Son. Make sure you are united to the Son. Make sure you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your sin will be condemned one way or another because God is just. He will either consider it to have been condemned in the flesh of his Son on the cross or it will be condemned in your flesh on the day of judgment and for all eternity. You deserve condemnation. You have no one to blame for your crimes against God. You haven't been framed. It's not a case of mistaken identity. You can't say to God on the day of judgment, you've got the wrong guy, you've got the wrong girl. You are guilty before God just like the rest of us. And you should ask yourself, What am I going to do about that? Really, there's nothing you can't do. But what what we're looking at here this morning from God's word is that God has done what you can't do. He has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he has condemned sin in the flesh. And if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, 
The condemnation you deserve will not fall on you. It will fall on Christ. So make sure you are united to the Son. Second, and finally, if you're already united to the Son, remember again this morning and rejoice again this morning that God is the one who made it happen. Look again at verse 3 that we've looked at this morning. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God did it. We didn't do it. We couldn't do it. We didn't even want to do it. But God did it for us. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned our sin in the flesh of his son. And therefore we are free from condemnation and free from the reigning power of sin. Christ has purchased our freedom at the cost of his own life. And he did that because that's what the father sent him to do. God made it happen. And we can rest in that and rejoice in that. And he who began a good work in you will continue that good work in you and will bring that good work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. He will do it. He will do it. We can trust him to do it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you for what you have done to save us. You have done what the law could not do. You have sent your son into the world to be a sacrifice for our sin. You have condemned our sin in his flesh on the cross. We needed all those things. So we thank you for giving them to us by your grace. And we pray that you would continue in each of us, each new day, the good work you began in us and bring it to completion. Finish the work you started and help us to trust you to do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.